When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Toya Wolf about the last summer on State Street. Toya grew up in the Robert Taylor homes on Chicago's South Side. She earned an MFA in creative writing at Columbia College, Chicago. Her writing has appeared in African Voices, Chicago Journal, Chicago Reader, Hair Trigger 27, and Warpland. She is a recipient of the Zora Neale Hurston Bessie Head Fiction Award, the Union League Civic and Arts Foundation Short Story Competition, and the Betty Shiflett John Schultz Short Story Award. She currently resides in Chicago. Last Summer on State Street is her debut novel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, Toya. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I cannot tell you how excited I am that you are here. I loved Last Summer on State Street, and I cannot wait to talk with you about it. Oh, thank you so much. Well, what I usually do is have authors start out with a quick synopsis of the book for those that won't have read it yet. So could you do that for me? Sure. Uh, Last Summer on State Street follows the lives of four 12-year-old girls. Um, as told by one of them, uh, she's she's in her 30s now, looking back on the summer when she and her friends were 12. And in that summer, they uh, sort of watched the city knock down their neighborhood around them. But there were also some really um, life-changing incidents that happened in their individual households. So last summer on State Street, through a girl's perspective, takes you into the Robert Taylor homes and shows you what life is like there, but also in one life-changing summer in 1999 in Chicago, uh, the things that happened with this, this group of girls. Well, I have so many questions, but before we dive into those, I want to ask you about all of the wonderful press you have received and having Steph Curry pick you for his August literati selection. Was that just beyond exciting? Um, it was beyond because I had just watched him in the playoffs 
and then um, was excited to see him on the ESPYs. You know, this is a person who, especially the Black community, like we really look up to Steph Curry and the things that he does to sort of give back. And to have him sort of give back to me personally, I just wouldn't have even dreamed uh, that I would be so fortunate. Well, congratulations first, because that is really, truly such an honor. (laughs) Thank you. Second, I think it's just so great that they have him making these monthly selections instead of it just being authors, that they're pulling other people from parts of different communities. I think you reach so many more people. And like you just said, I mean, he is such a hero, I think, to so many people. And so to have him picking different books and talking about them, promoting literature, it's just wonderful. It is wonderful. And it actually gives you um, a wider perspective of of faces. Like so many people are readers, but we don't, we don't think that athletes read and we don't even think that, you know, people of color are reading books and and we really are. So um, I think he represents so many different facets of, of literacy, you know? I agree completely. So I think they were very smart to have tapped him. Yeah. So how did you decide to write this story and how long did it take you? Let's see. Um, I I started out in undergrad just like writing stories and doing my homework like a good student. And I studied at Columbia College uh, here in Chicago. And the program is such a, it was so unique because you actually generate work inside of your classes. And I would have homework assignments and, you know, this whole write what you know, like it started so long ago, this phrase, but um, our teachers would have us write an assignment and I would write, you know, what was in my head. And a lot of it was still my childhood neighborhood of the Robert Taylor Homes. So I started writing all these stories and they were all set in the Robert Taylor Homes. And I realized that all these little stories wanted to be a novel. And so then I started the work of like sort of transforming it into a longer work. And at the time I was working at a community center across the street from the Robert Taylor Homes. And my mother and sister still lived in the Robert Taylor Homes. And so um, what was happening at the time is that the city was starting to demolish all of public housing all over the city. And they had started on the Robert Taylor Homes. And I had these stories about these little girls um, who liked to jump rope and it just really was sort of this ode to girlhood and girl friendships. And then I just gave them that extra layer thinking, how would these girls handle it if they had to watch their neighborhood come down? And when the neighborhood is sort of panicked and anxious about this big life event that's happening, how much would that ramp up everyone's sort of conflicts and existing issues? And so that's how Last Summer on State Street was born. And for those that aren't as familiar with Chicago and the way it built its original housing projects, I went to Northwestern. So I lived in Chicago for a while, and I'm somewhat familiar with some of the projects. But there were the Robert Taylor homes, which were, what, two miles long, right? How many buildings again? 28 buildings. Okay, so 28 buildings, and they occupied an area where they were kind of all together in a line. And then there was Cabrini Green, which was the other big one, right? Yeah. And the difference uh, with Robert Taylor Homes is that they were 16 stories tall. So these things are like looming and taking up a lot of real estate in the city. Uh, Yes. And and in a prime area, I can remember going to Comiskey Park when it was Mm -hmm. Comiskey Park and you get off the L and you come up and you walk over that really long walkway that really took you right by some of the Robert Taylor Homes and then you would get over by the ballpark. So I can remember making that path to and from the L. Yeah. So there were the two big projects and with lots of buildings in an area where people wanted the land, no doubt. 
So they decided to start bringing them down. And this was in the 90s into the early 2000s, correct? Yeah, the late 90s into the early 2000s. And I think there were a few arguments about the demolition that like, you know, these buildings were beyond repair because what happened is like um, the resources were sort of drained. Like people stopped repairing the elevators. They stopped repairing like things that were broken and then it just kind of deteriorated. And then it was like, oh, also, this is like really great real estate where by the State Street bus that takes you all the way to Navy Pier, we're in between the red and green lines. So I think there were a few things going on, like it's just to tear it down would be so beneficial to people who had a lot of resources. Well, and it's a fascinating study because I've read a book about it and then a variety of articles that once these buildings were built, from the beginning, they didn't do a great job keeping them up. Like the money was drained and used for a variety of other things, some appropriate, some totally not, like people just taking the money themselves and you know going off and doing stuff with it. But so they built these buildings, but then they really didn't maintain them. And then there became all sorts of issues. Like when you're writing about the gunfire and the drug use and the drug dealing, that had to be terrifying to live in the midst of all of that, was it? You know, it's interesting. Um, My grandmother moved into the Robert Taylor homes in 62, the year they built them. And my mother at the time was like a school age child and she grew up there. And I think what happens is like when things slowly change over time and become unsafe, you somehow like adjust and adapt. And it's like you learn to live in this like terrifying situation. You're not in fear 24-7, you just understand what the cues are and you behave the way you need to to survive. Um, And I know this sounds really crazy to hear, (laughs) but it's like you still find ways to like find joy and carry on and be safe, even though you're literally living in a war zone. So it's, I think because things sort of like changed around my family over the years, there wasn't just one day someone showed up and occupied our neighborhood, you know, <laughs> right. it, it was such a slow change that like you changed along with all the, the violence and the trauma and you found a way to manage it, even though it wasn't, it's no one's ideal. But I think the other option too, is that you have folks who've lived in a neighborhood like this around people who look like them and who they're comfortable with. And the other option of sort of moving out of this sort of village, it's almost as terrifying as remaining there. So it's such a weird like arrangement, but definitely like all of the the gang violence and the guns and the drugs and all that stuff, it's like a constant. But for people who've lived there for uh, years and years, you somehow learn how to like live amongst this sort of very, the the violence and all the, um, all these negative things. Well, and I thought you brought that to life so vividly, like I could feel like I was almost there with them, where the girls would be jumping rope, as you mentioned, or playing a game or at the park, whatever it was they were doing. And then all of a sudden, either they heard the gunfire and they knew exactly what to do, or they could begin to see the cues of things moving around, men moving around. They're like, ah, something's coming. And Fifi had a plan. And as soon as all of that happened, she knew exactly what to do and she would go do it. And I felt like it was so sad. I mean, I felt so bad for her, but I also felt you so vividly depicted that, that I just felt like I could see exactly what was happening. Thank you. Yeah. And there's, there's certain ways you live in neighborhoods like this. Like there are going to be people who read this book and they're going to understand, they're going to relate to this, that like they live in places where you have to act fast, where you have to sort of keep your eye on what's happening. And when people are 
behaving strangely and, and that that signals danger. So I wanted to get those things in the book. This is not my personal story of growing up in the Robert Taylor homes, but there are some rules and sort of laws and guidelines for survival that I definitely wanted to get into the story. Absolutely. And then on top of it, to have this idea that they're slowly beginning to close, and you may not know exactly when your building is slated to close, and what you mentioned earlier, like, where are you going to go? And that is frightening. You've built a community. You have friends around. You know who to rely on and who can help out in this situation and what your environment is like. So to have all of that taken away and all of that uncertainty, exactly when is it going to happen? When is our building going to be demolished? And all of that, it must have just been really difficult for those people that were living there. I mean, your mother and your sister, I guess. Yeah, it's, um, I definitely, I think transitions are hard anyway, but this is such a major uh, shift in so many people's lives. It was such a major shift. And so, yeah, I just, I wanted to get all that sort of panic and anxiety and all the neighborhood chatter because, oh my goodness, the neighborhood starts talking about what they think <laughs> is happening. And it's like a game of telephone, right? Yeah. And all the urban legends and just right. all the things just start flying around. And so I think there's this other level of like the entire community is freaked out and like what that turns into. And living in a building that is half empty. You know, I had never really thought about that part of it. And that was another thing that you brought to the forefront was what it would be like to live there still as other people have already left. Yeah. Like a haunted house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's exactly what I was thinking. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. I like that Fifi was reflecting back on her time at the Robert Taylor Homes. Was that always the way you had crafted the story? There was some tension to the story as a result of that because she could reflect back and say, I wish I had seen such and such coming or had I known to look for this. And I felt it kind of ratcheted up the tension of the story. Yeah, I just had some really smart writers around me because um, originally I made her like 14 or 15 and she was like way too close to the story to be able to process as an adult, you know? Right. And I really, I really had her sort of close to the timeline, but then I had like professors and fellow writers who I trust who were just like, you need to make her older because then she could sort of have more, she'd have like a adult perspective and she knows how it all turns out. and. Um, so just as like a, just to appease some professors, um, because listen, I'm a good student. Now I would definitely, <laughs> I would take a suggestion, but I would still keep my original manuscripts. And I'm like, if this doesn't work out, I'm going back to the original. And it just, it like was so much better because you had a survivor's tale at that point and you didn't know who else was going to make it out, but at least Fifi could kind of look back and walk you through the story and give you some emotions from her young self and emotions from her adult self. And so this is just like an example of what it's like to take great feedback from smart people <laughs> and to not be stubborn uh, when it comes to revising things. Exactly. Because as an adult, she really can understand better some of the things that she probably couldn't process or didn't know were happening. As an adult, she can look back at her 12-year-old self and say, oh, you know, had I understood this, it would have, I would have looked at it differently. Yeah. And there are still some things I left really sort of um, open and ambiguous because I wanted it to be true to life. We don't always know what happens to our friends. We don't always know without spoiling anything, even like Tanya's situation, like it was years before she found out a little bit more um, about all the details. And so I just think Having her be an adult, she just had like the full 
as a writer, it gave me more tools to move around and to tell, to do a little foreshadowing and to tell the stories of like everybody. She almost has the kind of flexibility that a third person narrator would have, you know, that sort of omniscient God type that's pulled all the way back. Like she has a lot of authority and movement as a narrator. And I just don't think it would have been the same if I kept her like really young. I agree with that. Well, I thought it worked out very well. So I'm glad you took their feedback. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) What was the most surprising thing about writing this book? The most surprising thing I set out to, I set out to definitely show a lot of different models of, especially like black girls and black women. And I think one of the things that surprised me most um, is what happened with Stacia's character that like, I really wanted her to be a character who did exactly what she wanted to do, even if it made really bad, you know, even if she was going to make really bad choices. And I think I wanted to give these characters like some redemption because I, I think that black, black people especially don't always get that. If someone commits like a, a petty crime, they may spend the rest of their life in jail. And their white counterparts don't have the same sort of, the same thing doesn't happen to them in court, you know? And so someone like Stacia who makes some terrible decisions, like I really wanted to see what would happen with her character if she had a little bit of um, support, if, you know, if she would change it all. And I don't like outline and and, um, decide the the fates and outcomes of my characters. I just kind of get started and I see like what unfolds. And so how her storyline unfolded uh, was pretty shocking to me. And there were drafts in um, years prior where she literally took over the whole book. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is not going to work. Like this is because I had a, I had a professor who suggested I gave, that I give all the girls their own chapter. And I didn't like that, but I sort of landed on dual narrators and then sort of going into the final years of revising this manuscript. I settled on one narrator and another would have her say through like journal, you know, she would, there would be a way for her to kind of express what she's feeling too, but just not in having her own chapters, you know? So how things turned out with her character really surprised me. I was curious if the journal entries had been something that you had started with, or as you were revising, that was the way to give Stacia her, her say or explain kind of her story and how it came about. You know, I actually, um, I think originally Fifi had a journal, but I just never used it. It it was like mentioned once and just never really like tapped into. And I realized that in like one of the last drafts before we started to um, send it out, I realized that there was an opportunity there. I have a lit agent who's like really brilliant and very sort of hands-on and editorial. And she just asks really smart questions. And one of the questions was sort of revolving around these journal entries. And she's like, they didn't exist at the time, actually. She's just like, what do you want to do with this journal? Because there's a lot of opportunity here, but we just kind of mention it and move on. And then that's when I had like the light bulb moment. Like, I really want people to know what Stacia's thinking and feeling. And she's also not a character who's going to tell you these things. But if, you know, if there were a journal we would get to hear like the uncut, (laughs) you know, uncut Stacia. And so that's sort of how that came together. Well, I thought it worked very well. And I, you know, you get to that part of the book and then you're like, oh, and so you're kind of (laughs) reading it and you're like, I was wondering what happened here without any spoilers. Yeah. 
What about keeping the four girls distinct? Obviously, Fifi is distinct and Stacia. But what about the other two, Precious and Tanya? Was it easy to have them have very distinct personalities? Did you have to really work on that? How did that come about for you? You know, what was helpful um, was their circumstances. So a kid who's growing up in a household full of gangsters, it's funny. It's like I used to joke that she's like hood royalty. And you imagine like if you grew up in a royal family, like where do you fit in the line of succession? And are you part of the family business or no? And like, why are you sort of not in? And then how would you behave outside if you were part of like a royal family? And it just so happens that for Stacia, it turns her into like a total, on the one hand, you could argue she's a total bully super aggressive, you know, all these things. And it all comes from like growing up in a family where everybody is kind of in charge outside. And then you have a um, character like Tanya, whose mom is having some very specific struggles. And you have to ask the question, like, if a single mom is going through these things, how would that sort of show up in her kid's personality, in her kid's attire, you know, those sorts of things. So I think at one point I... With um, Precious, Stacia, and Tanya, knowing that they come from a family that is consumed by drugs or the church or a gang, that kind of helped me decide how they would behave. That makes sense. And that was the thing that I thought about Stacia a lot was it almost was like royalty because she had this whole group behind her that would protect her no matter what. So she really didn't have to worry about any fear of consequences because she knew she could pretty much do whatever she wanted. And if it didn't go the way she wanted it to go, she had a lot of backup. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was interesting. That like bleeds into their personalities and how they behave in this group, like what's actually happening in their house. For sure, for each one of them, which I think is exactly what happens in the real world, wherever you are, is whatever's happening in your home is going to bleed out into your life. And at 12, it's probably really hard for Fifi. I mean, it was really hard for Fifi at times to understand that that was what was happening. Yeah. And I don't know if at 12, it would have helped her to behave differently. Um, We forget the 12 year olds are like still full of like emotions and hormones and they want what they want. And so I sort of gave them this age so that they could really um, just be their unfiltered selves. And I think you're more inward looking at that age. You're not really going to be as sympathetic or empathetic, not, not because you won't want to be, but just because I don't think that stage really lends itself to that. But to understand, okay, Tanya, this is what's happening in Tanya's home. This is why she is the way she is. Yeah, but I think Fifi's the one character who does yeah. access those emotions at a very early age and, and really is very parental. And, and it just helps to give her character this big burden of seeing what is not said and understand, even if she doesn't understand fully, knowing that like her friends are in crisis. That's exactly right. I think she doesn't understand it fully, but she does completely get that they are in crisis and that that is probably why they're acting the way they're acting. But she does, I I didn't feel like sometimes that from that age, she really had the right kind of understanding because you couldn't at 12 is to everything happening in your home is really bleeding out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what about the highlight of writing the book? Um, You know, what's so funny. I just feel like I got it all down. (laughs) like. I grew up in a place that literally does not exist anymore. Like if you go over to the site of the Robert Taylor homes, especially like the building where I grew up, it's nothing but grass. And to 
paint a picture of where I grew up and how lively things were for better or worse. Um, it's nearly impossible, but I just had this tool like to write a story and get it all down, like all the history, the why, like where these people come from, like how, how they came up for the great migration, looking for jobs. And, you know, you have a character like Mama Pearl who really functions as like a historian amongst other things. And I have this book, like no matter what happens with this book, it's been incredible that like people are reading this book and talking about it. It's getting to the point where like everywhere I go, people are like, you wrote this book? My friend told me about this book. And I'm just like, praise the Lord. This is like, you you, you would only hope that your book would sort of spread around in this way. But one of the things that, um, one of the biggest highlights for me is that I get to preserve Chicago history, which includes the Robert Taylor Homes and the white people who live there. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's one of the things that appealed to me before I even read it. It was a place I was familiar with, but I don't recall ever reading about it in fiction. And so I loved that. And then I felt like you did preserve it so well. Did you have to do a lot of interviews? Obviously, you grew up there and your mom and sister were still there after you were not, no longer living there. But did you talk to other people in, that had lived there to kind of pull their stories together? I did not. I actually, so my grandmother passed away last year at like 94. I'm sorry. But she lived such a full, vibrant life and she taught us so much. And the us, I mean, not just my family, but like all the people in the neighborhood. <laughs> and she was a teacher at uh, Overton Elementary School and one of the like preschools in the neighborhood. So there were all these people when she passed away who still called her Miss Richardson, you know? And I just like, I, my grandma and I spent a lot of time talking. She was actually my first teacher. So when I was like three or four and started like daycare, um, she would drive me to school because it's where she taught. And we would have conversations and um, she would tell me all the time, like you asked so many questions and you talked so much. And I think that's why you're really smart. <laughs> and so I think like from early, early childhood, I've been talking to my grandmother about our history, where we come from, and the Robert Taylor Homes. And so when I sat down to write this book, there was so much knowledge uh, in my head about the city. And of course, you know, I haven't lived there for over two decades. So I would like go online and like fact check my memory, if you will, just to make sure like, you know, I'm not making stuff up. But there was like, I did not have to do a ton of research. There is, um, I recently found a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks called In the Mecca. It's a long prose poem. And it was one of the newest discoveries and one of the main things I did have to research. But um, there used to be this apartment complex down by, now I'm going to blank. It's in the book though. <laughs> down by 31st and State Street, where the Illinois Institute of Technology is located. There used to be a big apartment building there. They built it for the World's Fair. And after the World's Fair, they couldn't get white people to live there because it was too close to Bronzeville. And they thought like, you know, too many black people live over there. They didn't want to live there. So they had to rent it out to middle-class black people. And it was just like a bustling community and businesses sprang up owned by black people. And so fast forward in like uh, the fifties, they tear it down because the same thing happened. Like it sort of fell into disrepair. No one wanted to like renovate it. And I didn't know about this place at all. They were called the Mecca Flats. I didn't, I had never heard about this place at all. And it all sprang from a Gwendolyn Brooks poem. 
And so then I dug into that and like found, you know, articles and things like that. And so there were like a few things that popped up that like were these special, you know, desserts that I could sort of add. But mostly, most of the things that are in the book are just from my knowledge of talking to elders and just paying attention to my surroundings. I lived in a Robert Taylor Homes until I was 18 and went off to college. So just a lot of information that I didn't even know I had and didn't know what I was going to do with. And you started writing and then some of those things would come back to you or you'd find a way to incorporate them. And I love that you could incorporate some of your grandmother's stories or at least the stories that she told you as well. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about that stunning cover and the title. I'm always fascinated with how titles and covers come about, and I'd love to hear about both. Oh, I have a story for you. Let's see. Should we start with the cover or the title? You you pick. Either one. (laughs) Whatever you'd like to start with first. Let's start with the cover. So I said, first of all, this is such a privilege. I will preface the story by saying it's a privilege to have any two cents about your cover as an author, because that's not always the case. But my publisher, my editor was just very interested in sort of my vision for the cover. And so I sent her a Pinterest board with colors and other covers and just, you know, different things that inspired me. And one of the main things that I had in my mind is that this book has a theme of sunsetting. So the sunsetting of a neighborhood or the actual sunset is featured in the book a few times. And I said, this book cover needs to be hot. It's summer. It's little girls in the summer. They're wearing the brightest colors and just like, it needs to be a very vibrant um, cover. And so they thought about it and thought that maybe like, that was too much. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know about that. And then we kind of like, they sent me some covers and I was like, listen to me. You have to trust me on this. And when they finally did send over a cover that had those those colors on it, we just like loved it, loved it. And there were some other smaller things, like there were trees and some other stuff. And I was like, part of the tragedy of my neighborhood is that they, I didn't grow up around trees. So, right. you know, let's take this out and make space for like maybe the girls or some girls. And we just kind of went back and forth and talked it out. And then, um, and then this cover was born and we all just like loved it so much. And the um, Penguin UK in the UK acquired the foreign rights for the UK. And we were like chatting about it because there was a totally different title. We were chatting about it and they said, um, my editor over there was like, I have an idea for a title because the one that we have, I don't think it translates so well with our, you know, audience and everything. And so I jumped on a call, we chatted out. I was like, give me the weekend to think about it. And I called my mom who like, doesn't, she's not like a voracious reader, you know, but I asked her, I said, if you saw a book across the room that was called last summer on state street, like, what would it make you think? And she said, I would wonder what happened that summer. It sounds like it was a very eventful summer. And I said, we've got to change the title. (laughs) (laughs) What was the title before? It was landmarks. Oh, which almost sounds like nonfiction too. Yeah. And of course, like, of course, um, because that was part of like my editor in the UK, she had like a five point pre, she's just like, here are the reasons that I think we need to change. And one of them was like, she's like, you have to think about when people Google the title of your book, what's going to pop up. And she's like, they've got to comb through all these architecture books and just, you know, and so she was just very smart. And then last summer on State Street had like no competition. So, (laughs) well, and I think that is the great thing that it has no competition, but your mom is exactly right. You see that title and you're like, I got to know what happened on (laughs) State Street, you know? 
And then I think that your cover is just stunning and it does make you feel hot. Like it makes you feel heat, you know, and you're like, oh, there's, this is so exciting and it's a vibrant area, but it's warm. I just think it's perfect. And it, you know, it also made me think about a classic book that I read in high school, which is House on Mango Street, which is another girlhood tale set in Chicago. Uh, follows a Mexican family. And I just right. thought, wow, I'm like sort of joining the canon of books about Chicago neighborhoods. And so it was like a no brainer. I just wanted to take the weekend just to kind of think about it. But by Monday, I was like, okay, let's do it. Well, that's a big change. I mean, you know, you've been thinking one thing and it, you certainly do need some time to let that percolate. But also, I think she's exactly right. You look up, they're going to be like, I thought I was reading about all these famous buildings in Chicago versus <laughs> reading about what your story is about. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I love your website. I had so much fun wandering around on it. Oh. And I just <laughs> thought it was so fun, all your different recommendations. And we are huge Abbott Elementary fans at my house. So I was happy to see <laughs> that you are too. Wonderful. <laughs> that is such a great show. So I thought it was fun the way you had done variety of things that you were recommending and things that you liked. A friend sort of suggested, she's like, you know, we go to all these websites and we don't learn anything about the person ex except for like where they're going to be and like their bio. And I was like, what if we made it like a magazine article kind of? And so that's kind of why there's all that fun stuff on there. <laughs> I thought it was very clever and it did help me get to know you a little bit. And share that we both like Abbott Elementary. And it was interesting to see the books you were recommending and yeah. just a variety of things. So I think that was a great idea by your friend. Thank you. <laughs> and on that note, what books have you read recently that you really liked? Ooh, all right. So there's some hot ones that are like all over the place. Um, Night Crawling by Lila Motley. She is a young person. I think she's like 20, young person who's living in Oakland. And she wrote a novel um, that's based on a true story about um, a young woman who sort of ends up in a trafficking ring, like led by the police in Oakland. And it's just sort of about, it's about community and about like what happens when people don't have a lot of resources and sort of how they can kind of get trapped in, in some of these dark worlds. And then a little bit closer to home, Three Girls from Brownsville is a memoir by um, Don Turner. And it's actually set about half a mile away from where I grew up a few decades before I was like around. And Dawn Turner is a journalist by trade, but she's also written a ton of novels. And I just love this book because it follows three little black girls. And it is the story of like the main character, her sister and her best friend. And they don't all, I won't like give it away, but they don't all have the same sort of outcome. And it really just, it's about our sort of main character just sort of coming to terms with what happened to these two people that she loves so much and asking these questions of like, you know, how did they all sort of end up with such different fates and they grew up in the same place. Uh, incredible book, incredible, another like Chicago book um, about black girlhood. So those, those are like the two, um, the two that are on my brain, like right, right now. Okay, so I'm looking forward to reading Janelle Monae's uh, collection. It is sort of an adaptation of her album, Dirty Computer, which is a very different way to be inspired to write a book. I'm like a straight up fiction writer. I have yet to touch anything like nonfiction really like for myself, but I like to read science fiction. I like to read memoir. And of course, I'm into fiction. So I definitely want to um, 
I want to see like how how she sort of took these concepts and ideas from her album and turned it into like a short story collection. And let's see what else is on my list. Uh, I mean, if you don't have anything else, you don't have to. I mean, if you want to, it's great. But if you don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like those are like the what's what's been uh, swirling around my mind lately. But yeah, we're approaching the holidays. So I'm going to get through a lot of books. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that too. I feel like it's a quieter time with books coming out so that I'll be able to actually get some other stuff read that I've been wanting to. In fact, Three Girls from Bronzeville has been on my list for a while and I've heard great things about it. So I need to get to it. So good. <laughs> well, Toya, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. This was an absolute delightful conversation. Thank you. It was so great to be here. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate your taking the time to listen to my podcast. I want to quickly share about this wonderful company I am now partnering with. I am always looking for entities that promote and highlight books, and recently came across book clubs a company who provides all sorts of resources for established and new book clubs, as well as individual readers. My own personal book club recently signed up on book clubs, and the group has been impressed with all of the great tools the site and app provide. The book club's website is linked in my show notes, and I hope you will check them out soon. Also, if you like my show, I would be so grateful if you would tell everyone you know about it and rate it on whichever platform you listen on. It truly makes a huge difference and really helps the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and that link is also in the show notes. I hope you will check out some other Thoughts from a Page episodes and have a great day. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.